You can turn to the book of Ephesians. We'll start in Ephesians chapter 1. This morning, as we continue our Big Ideas of the Bible series, I get to preach what I would call my Alabama sermon. And what I mean by that, if you think about the football season, every game is important. The team needs to play well, needs to win every game. But some games are more crucial than others. There's some games where the whole season's on the line, the whole nation is watching. That's like when we play Alabama. That's this sermon. Every sermon in a sermon series is important. We're never going to waste your time with fluff. But there are some sermons where eternity is literally on the line, where, where your destiny means something in that sermon. And so this morning, that's where we are. It's an Alabama sermon because your eternity is at stake. We're talking about salvation this morning about how you personally find deliverance from sin and death so that you can spend eternity with God in heaven. So we're going to talk about salvation this morning. It's a significant topic. We want to make sure we get it right. So let's begin with a definition. What does salvation mean? And, and we'll start, of course, with the Bible because we're in church. So what does the Bible mean when it uses the word save or salvation, when you come across that word in the Bible? Well, most people assume that when they see save or salvation in the Bible, it means get to heaven, that, that it's kind of almost like a technical term for escaping hell and getting to heaven. But that's not actually correct. In both Hebrew and Greek, the word save or salvation, it was not a technical term for go to heaven. It was actually a very common word, a very everyday word that simply meant to deliver, to deliver or rescue someone from something. And in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, it gets used in a, in a whole variety of ways. You can be delivered from sleep. In the book of John, save means wake you up from sleep. It can mean release from prison. It can mean heal someone from sickness. It can mean deliver someone from God's wrath in the future. It can mean to to rescue someone from the penalty or power of sin. And that's just a, a short sample. There's a lot of other uses of the word. It's a very common word used in a lot of ways. But This morning, we don't really want to talk about healing someone from an illness. We want to talk about the last few on the board, the really big ones. What I like to call salvation with a capital S. How God saves you from from his wrath and from the penalty and power of sin. That's what we're going to talk about this morning. Salvation with a capital S. And what do you need to know about salvation with a capital S? Well, according to the Bible, it's a really big thing. Salvation with a capital S, the spiritual sense of salvation. It's a really huge thing. And that's important for you to recognize because most Christians go through life with a very small view of salvation. Most Christians assume that salvation with a capital S, spiritual salvation, that it's just a get out of hell card. That it's just a ticket to get on the heaven bound bus when you die. Well, people who have that view of salvation, they remind me of the person who goes and buys an iPhone and the only thing they ever use it for is to make phone calls. It can do that relatively well, but there's so much more that it can do. You can check your email, you can look up directions, you can take pictures of your kids, you can play Pokemon. I've been told that there is some kind of Pokemon thing on the stage this morning. That kind of freaks me out. But if you have an iPhone and you want to check it out, be my guest. Because it can do that. It can do so much more than just make phone calls. Well, that's salvation. 
Salvation does so much more than just get you to heaven. It does that very, very well, but it does so much more than that. Salvation in scripture is so much more than just getting to heaven when you die. According to the Bible, salvation with a capital S, it includes an event. That's particularly what we're going to talk about this morning. An event that happens in an instant when you trust in Jesus. But it's more than just that event because salvation also includes a process where God grows you, where he develops your character and shapes you to be more like his son, Jesus. We call that process sanctification, and it's so big and so important that it will get a sermon of its own. Brian will teach on sanctification on August 14th. But, but salvation in the Bible, it's not just an event and a process, it's also a destiny, It's where you're headed in the future when Jesus comes back and resurrects you and perfects you and leads you into a better world, that destiny we call glorification. And that was so big and so important that it actually already got a sermon of its own. Jacob preached on that here at Anderson July 10th. If you missed that, you can catch it online. So salvation in the Bible is so big that we had to give it three sermons, actually four Because Brian will be here next week talking about the security of your salvation. It's a huge topic. Way more than we could possibly cover on one Sunday. So all I'm going to try to do today is that first one. I want to talk about the event of salvation that happens the instant you trust in Jesus. So what does the Bible tell us? about the event of salvation. Well, the first thing that we discover when we study scripture about salvation is that that this event of salvation, it goes by many names in the Bible. And that actually makes it kind of challenging to study the topic of salvation because you will see many different words used by God in the Bible to describe the event of salvation, what happens to you that moment, that instant that you believe in Jesus. It's such a big deal, such a huge thing that one name would not suffice. God had to use many names. It reminds me of a guy named George Herman Ruth, better known as Babe Ruth arguably the greatest baseball player ever, he was so great, so incredible that his fans gave him lots of names. So he goes by the babe, the Bambino, the Sultan of Swat, the King of Swing, the Terrible Titan, the Colossus of Cloud, and many other names. What you see there is that the greater something is, the bigger something it is, the more names it's given. He's so great he gets many names. So it is with salvation. It's so big, it's so great that God had to use many names, many words in the Bible to describe this thing we call salvation. And each name describes it from kind of a different perspective, a different angle. So let me walk you through some of the names that God gives us in the Bible for the event of salvation. The first one is found in Ephesians, look at chapter 1. And let's look at verse 7. There's actually two names here. We'll start with one of them. In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's start with the word forgiveness. One of the first words God gives us for the event of salvation, the instant you trust in Jesus, he forgives you. Well, forgiveness in the Bible means literally to let go of something. So you you let go. So when you sin, you are not sinning against a religion or a principle. You're sinning against a person, 
against God. And, and as a person who has been sinned against, God has the right to hold on to your sins and to hold them against you in the future. But the moment you trust in Jesus, God opens his hands. He literally lets go of your sin. All of it, past, present, and future. He lets it all go. It washes all away so that none of it is held against you. This is the personal perspective on salvation. We sinned against a person. He has the right to hold that sin against us. Instead, he lets it go so that all of our sins, past, present, and future, are washed away the instant we believe in Jesus. Second name that God gives to the event of salvation is found particularly in the book of Romans, all the way through the book of Romans. You see it over and over again. Romans 3, 23 and 24. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Justified or justification. This looks at the event of salvation from a courtroom perspective. So it's not the personal perspective, it's the legal perspective. In justification, we picture ourselves in a courtroom and we're the guilty party. We're the criminals, we did the bad stuff, and God is the judge. And we're clearly guilty. There's no question about it. We deserve to be condemned. And instead, God looks at us and bangs his gavel on the bench and says, not guilty. In the eyes of the court, you are in the right. You are acquitted. That's the idea of justification, a legal or courtroom perspective on your salvation. God declares you to be forever in the right, acquitted, not guilty third word that God gives us for the event of salvation. We've actually already read it back in verse 7. In him we have redemption. What does redemption mean? Well, redemption is an economic term. It looks at your salvation as a transaction. To redeem means to buy someone out of slavery. So when you were born, you were born in slavery to sin and Satan. You legally belong to sin and to the kingdom of Satan. But the moment that you believed in Jesus, Jesus purchased you out of that slavery so that you now belong to Jesus. You are now his. So the easiest way to think of redemption, um, if you've bought a car before, you received a title with that car. A blue sheet of paper from the state of Texas. And on that title, in this illustration, you are the car. You're the car, and on previous owner line, it says sin and Satan. That's who you belong to. New owner line, it says Jesus. Date of transaction is the instant you believed. The moment that you trusted in Jesus, Jesus purchased you out of slavery to sin and Satan, so you now belong to Jesus. So this is salvation from an economic perspective. Fourth name that the Bible uses for the event of salvation. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. It says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul's describing a person before the moment or instant or event of salvation. We were spiritually dead, unable to resist sin because we had no spiritual life in us. We had no ability to please God. We were dead, but then look at verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. To make alive, the word we use for that is regeneration. God regenerates you. He, he, he makes you alive. You were dead. Now you are alive. It's where we get the phrase born again. 
You were born again. So at the moment of your physical birth, you became physically alive, but you were still spiritually dead. But then the moment that you trust in Jesus, a new birth happens. You are suddenly spiritually alive in addition to being physically alive. So remember when I was a kid, I have a younger brother, three years younger than me. Um, there was a day in time, I think it was about six or seven years old, when he trusted in Jesus as his savior. And I remember my mom went straight into the kitchen and baked him a birthday cake. And the reason was to show him that this day is just as momentous as the day of your birth. Because on that day you became physically alive, on this day you became spiritually alive. It is that big a deal. That's regeneration. It happens the instant you trust in Jesus. God makes you alive. Okay, fifth term that the Bible uses to describe the event of salvation. We find it in the book of Colossians. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, this is again describing us before salvation. We were hostile towards God. We were God's enemies, separated from him, angry towards him. But then, the next verse, yet he has now reconciled you, that is Jesus has reconciled you to God in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach reconciled or reconciliation that means to make someone at peace with someone that they were previously hostile to to two enemies made at peace with one another so spiritual reconciliation is you who were God's enemy is now made God's friend the instant you trusted in Jesus Jesus reached down and took you who were an enemy of God and made you a friend of God and the easiest way to to picture reconciliation, it's actually really quite easy. In our culture at the moment, in our country at the moment, everyone is hostile towards everyone else. There's lots of anger. There's lots of separation. There's lots of yelling. Well, reconciliation is the opposite of that. Reconciliation is not just that we stop yelling at each other, but that we actually join hands and become one, become friends with one another. That's what's happened between you and God the moment that you trusted in Jesus. You were an enemy, now you're a friend. But something actually even more significant than that happened. The moment that you trusted in Jesus, reconciliation was part of it, but there's something bigger that happened, and Paul describes that bigger thing in verse 5 of chapter 1. So chapter 1, verse 5, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will. Reconciliation's great, but adoption is greater. Adoption means that you take someone and bring them into your family. You make them your child. So you were an enemy of God, hostile towards God. You hated God, yet God reached down. And not only did he reconcile you to himself, but he brought you into his own family. He adopted you as his son or his daughter so that he sees you every day and will spend eternity with you adoption is a bigger thing than reconciliation. In a sense, it's almost even a bigger thing than forgiveness. And let me explain that. Okay, so the moment that, that you were saved, something absolutely radical happened between you and God. You see, before that, you had sinned against God. We all did that. We sinned against God. And sometimes we don't recognize the fact that when we're sinning against God, we're actually grieving him. I don't know if you've ever thought about your sin that way. 
Your sin isn't just against you or against another human being. It's against God. You're grieving God. And the Bible actually tells us that our sin hurts God at an emotional level. How do I know that? Well, the Old Testament prophets. God describes himself as the jilted, the cheated husband towards Israel because of their idolatry. And then the book of Luke, Luke chapter 19, Jesus is entering Jerusalem. He crests the final hill. He looks down at the city and he weeps over it because he sees their rebellion. So our sin hurts God at an emotional level. So it would be incredibly gracious of God to forgive us and then send us on our way. That would be big of God, but he does something even bigger because he forgives us and then he brings us into his own home. So that we're part of his family. So that he sees us every day forever. That's a bigger thing. When my neighbor sins against me, does something mean? It's hard but not impossible for me to forgive him. Because then he's going to go into his house and I'm going to go into my house. And I don't have to see him again. But to forgive somebody and bring him into your own house so that you see them all the time. That's incredibly difficult. What has happened in adoption Picture this for a moment. Imagine that the sniper in Dallas would not have died and for some reason would not have gone to jail. And that one of the families of one of the officers that was killed by him chose to not only forgive that sniper, but to actually adopt that man into their own house. To bring him into their house so that he sleeps with them and eats with them every day for the rest of his life. They would pay for his college. They would take care of him. They would see him forever. That that sounds impossible, doesn't it? And yet that is exactly what God did for you and for me. We had sinned against God, we'd grieved him, we'd hurt him deeply at an emotional level, and yet rather than just forgive us, he adopted us into his own family as his son or his daughter so that he has to see us every day forever. That's adoption. And it's really the, it's the last one I present because to me it's the biggest of all. God brought a former enemy into his own family as his son or his daughter so that he'll be with us forever. So a lot of words, a lot of names that God gives for the event of salvation. It can be hard to wrap your mind around. And so God gives us a summary term called eternal life. Most famous verse, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And when we quote that verse, we often think of eternal life means go to heaven. No, it doesn't. It includes go to heaven, but eternal life is the whole shebang. You have it now. If you've trusted in Jesus, you currently possess eternal life, which includes forgiveness, justification, redemption, regeneration, reconciliation, adoption, and some other stuff that I didn't have time to get to this morning. So it's a huge thing, eternal life. Salvation, the event of salvation with a capital S, is massive. That's the first thing to understand about it. This event is so big that God had to use many names to describe it. Second thing to understand about the event of salvation, it is both free and costly. Let me explain that. Seems like it couldn't be both. Well, let's start with free. Gift of salvation is absolutely free. Look at chapter 2, starting in verse 4. 
Paul says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come, he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, that is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one should boast. You see a word repeated over and over, don't you? Grace. What is grace? Well, grace is when you get something good you don't deserve. And Paul repeats that word because he wants to drive home to you. Salvation is by grace alone. And when Paul says that salvation is by grace alone, what he means is that the event of salvation isn't a reward. A reward is when you do something good to get something good. So you do something good so that you will get a nice reward at the end. Well, if that was salvation, then it would not be by grace. That is the definition of works. You go do good stuff, and then God gives you something good, and Paul is absolutely crystal clear. It's not by works, so it's not a reward. But more than that, not only is it not a reward, salvation is not a bargain. What is a bargain? A bargain is when you get something good at a reduced price. Like these pants. Julie got me these awesome Hollister jeans yesterday for $3. She's like the queen of discount shopping. It's amazing. Great discount, but not grace. Because I still had to work for those $3. Now, not nearly as long as if these were $30, but they're still not free. I had to work. And if you have to work at all, it's not grace. It's a bargain. And Paul's clear. No, salvation is by grace. So it's not a reward, it's not a bargain, and it's not a loan. What is a loan? That's when you get something now and pay for it later. So you go out from here and you go buy a new car with zero money down. Is that a gift? No. No, I hope you know that. If you don't, please come talk to me later. It's not a gift. You'll be paying for it for years to come. It's a loan. Unfortunately, that's how a lot of people think about salvation. They think of eternal life as a loan. God gives you something really good right now, eternal life. You can have it, but you're going to spend the rest of your life working either to keep it or prove it. You've got to do good works, either to keep that gift or prove that it's true. No, if that was the case, then that's not grace. Now, that's a loan. You're paying later. Paul's absolutely clear. You, you don't work ever for salvation, not before, not after. Works plays absolutely no role in the event of your salvation. Salvation is an absolutely free gift. It is by grace alone. Paul really unpacks that in the book of Romans. He tells us in Romans three twenty-eight: for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. No works, completely apart from works. Not a few works, not a little works, no works play into the event of salvation. Salvation with a capital S is an absolutely free gift God gives you with no strings attached. You do not work on the front end. You do not work on the back end. Your works play absolutely no role. It is absolutely free. But here's the really important part. I want to make sure you're paying attention here. The gift of salvation, the event of salvation, it is absolutely free, and yet that does not make it cheap. Now, actually... This gift of salvation, the event of salvation, what we call eternal life, it is staggeringly costly. 
but it's costly for God, not for you. Look at chapter 1 again, verse 7. What did it cost God to give us the gift of eternal life? In him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through his blood. The only way for eternal life to be possible for you was for God's own son to die in your place. He had to shed his blood. And Jesus is the most valuable person to ever live. He is actually more valuable than the entire universe put together. All of us, all seven billion of us put on one side of the scale and Jesus on the other side of the scale, he's heavier. He wins. He's more valuable. Why? Because he created everything. And the creator is always more valuable than the creation. And so Jesus, the most valuable person to ever live in this universe, he gave his life, he shed his blood to pay for our sins so that we could have eternal life. So please understand, even though we say that salvation is by grace alone, that does not make it cheap. No, actually salvation is the most expensive thing ever purchased in the history of the human race. It cost the life of God to set you free from sin. Salvation is the most expensive thing that has ever been purchased, but God paid the full price so you could have it for free. That's why the event of salvation is both absolutely free for us and staggeringly costly for God. Third thing that the Bible wants us to understand about the event of salvation, it is both ancient and instant. Ancient and instant. Let's start with ancient. Look at chapter 1, verse 4. Just as he, God, chose us in him, Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. Well, now we're getting into deep waters. Theologically, this is tough because we have here a mention of predestination, of choosing, of election, and that goes way beyond what my mind can understand. There's a lot about predestination that I I can't fathom. Here's a few things, though, that I, I have figured out from this passage, a few things that this passage tells us about predestination. When Ephesians tells us that God chose us, it's saying that God chose particular people by name in eternity past to be saved. He didn't choose groups of people. He chose particular people by name. How do I know that? Because of the word adopted. How do you adopt a child? You don't go pick a group of random kids. You go choose one child by name. That's how God chose you in eternity past. He looked into the future and he saw you and he knew everything about you and he knew your name and he called your name in eternity past and that's why you're saved today. So predestination, it's God choosing particular people. Second thing I know about predestination from this passage, God chose you based on love, not based on your merit. When God was back in eternity past looking into the future, he did not choose you because you were more likely to believe or more likely to be a good person. I didn't look into the future and see, oh, hey, Blake is going to believe, so I pick him. He can be on my team. If that was the case, then salvation wouldn't be by grace alone, because I would have brought something to the table, my proclivity to believe, my proclivity to be good. I would have brought something. Well, that's not grace. No, I am no more likely to believe than my neighbor. How do I know that? Chapter 2, verse 1, we are all born dead in sin and trespasses. We are all children of wrath. So why did God choose me to be saved and not my neighbor? 
well, I, I don't know. I just know it's not because of me. I am not in any way better than my neighbor. I am no more likely to believe, no more likely to be good. There is no merit I bring to the table. It is simply out of God's love. God in love chose. Third thing that I know about predestination based on this passage His choice of us in eternity past is meant to give us peace. Predestination was never meant by God to be a topic that theologians argue about. That's not the point of it. The point of predestination is to give believers peace. And here's why. Because if God chose me by name in eternity past, already seeing everything that I would do in the course of my life, then there's nothing I can do in the present to break or ruin his choice. It's important to understand, your salvation did not begin the moment that you trusted in Jesus. When did your salvation, your personal salvation begin? infinite ages ago, when God chose you by name, already knowing everything that you would ever do, that's when your salvation began. So if your salvation began in eternity past, there's nothing you're going to do in the present that's going to mess it up. You got to understand, to God, when he chose you, everything was future and yet he saw it all. He knew it all. So there's not going to be some sin that you're going to commit this afternoon that's going to shock God. And surprise him and all of a sudden he looks up and thinks, oh, wait a minute, maybe it was a mistake bringing that person into my family. No, he already knew everything that you would ever do and yet still chose you infinite ages ago. There's great security in the knowledge that your personal salvation began infinite years ago. Part of the reason that it's absolutely secure So predestination tells us that our salvation is incredibly ancient, and yet it's also instant. It happens the moment that you believe. It tells us, Ephesians 2, verse 8 again, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Salvation, even though it began infinite ages ago, the event of salvation happens the moment that you exercise faith, that you choose to believe that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life. Now that brings us to the mystery of salvation. Are you going to heaven because God chose you in eternity past or because you chose God in the present? The answer is yes, both. You don't get to pick. The Bible tells you it's both. It's it's both God's predestination and your choice to believe. I don't know how they're both true. I can't reconcile that. My limited, finite human mind cannot tie a neat bow around that. I just know that they're both true because the Bible teaches both. The Bible teaches clearly that God predestines and that we have free will to choose to believe. And Ephesians chapter 1 actually presents both. We've already seen God's choice of us in eternity past. That was verses 4 and 5. Now our choice to believe, verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. There's a moment when you hear the gospel. That means good news. That's what the word gospel means. 
the good news about Jesus, that God's son came to live a perfect life for you and then die in your place for your sins and then rise from the dead so you could have eternal life as a free gift. That's the gospel. There was a a moment when you believed that. To believe means that you are persuaded that it's true. You come to the conviction that that is true. That moment of persuasion is the moment that God saves you. His spirit seals you. So salvation, this event of salvation is both by God's choice in eternity past and by your choice to believe in the present. They are both true. And that brings us to the really most important question of the whole morning. Have you chosen to believe? Has there been a moment in your life when you have been persuaded that the gospel is true? When you've reached the conviction that, yeah, Jesus really lived and he really died for my sins and he really did rise from the dead so that I could have salvation as a free gift, yes. Now, what if you haven't gotten there yet? What if there's something holding you back? You just can't get to the place where you believe that. Well, I thought I'd take a few minutes this morning and walk you through the four most common reasons people have given me over the years for why they have not yet trusted in Jesus, why they haven't yet believed the gospel. First reason that I hear, hear it a lot, it's too hard to believe. Blake, it is just too hard to believe in a God I cannot see. It is too hard to believe in a virgin birth and in miracles and in resurrection when we don't see any of that stuff. We don't see that in our normal everyday life. I can't go into the laboratory and reproduce it. I can't prove it. I can't show it. Why should I believe? Well, there's actually lots of good reasons to believe. I think the strongest is the evidence for the resurrection. I want you to understand, I'm not a Christian because I took a blind leap in the dark. Not a Christian because it felt good to me. I'm a Christian because I looked at the evidence, historical evidence, and I concluded that the most likely explanation for all of the historical evidence out there is that a man named Jesus actually walked out of a tomb 2,000 years ago after having been crucified. If you will look at that evidence, if you will study the historical evidence, it can lead you to faith just like it led me to faith. So where do you find that evidence? Well, go under our website, go to Frequently Asked Questions, and we have a whole paper we've written there that walks you through the historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you will look at the evidence, the truth is in it. Look at that evidence, study it. If you still have questions, I would love to talk to you about it. This is like my my favorite subject in the world. Please come talk to me. You can email me, call me. We'll meet for coffee, whatever you'd like. Let's talk through the evidence. Yes, it's hard to believe, but it's not impossible. Because God has given us a ton of historical evidence for the resurrection of his son. And if his son rose from the dead, then it's all true. That's the great thing about the resurrection. Prove that one fact and all of Christianity is true. Okay, so look at the evidence. Second reason that people will often give me for not wanting to believe is it just sounds too good to be true. You're telling me that eternal life, the most valuable thing in your entire religion, that God gives it away as an absolutely free gift. That is absurd. That's ridiculous. Everybody knows there's no such thing as a free lunch. You got to do something. Well, actually, every other religion on the planet agrees with you. That's why they give you stuff to do. The law to obey, pilgrimages to do, sacrifices to do. You got to give alms to the poor. You got to pray. You got to do all this stuff because all of those religions are man-made and that's what men expect. 
adults, we don't want to be given something for free. I don't know if you think you do, but actually you don't. If a friend of yours comes up and gives you something absolutely for free, you feel awkward. If somebody gives me something absolutely for free, I'm quickly trying to think how I'm going to repay that favor. At a minimum, I'm pulling out a note to write a thank you note to them. Well, guess what? That's pride. That's what that is. That's pride. Because as adults, we feel like it's too humbling and too weak to receive something absolutely for free. And so every other religion on earth caters to that pride. It gives you something to do so that you can bring something to the table for God. Christianity doesn't. In Christianity, God says, no. Now that's your pride talking and I'm not giving in to your pride. Salvation, eternal life is absolutely for free. No strings attached. There's nothing you have ever done or will ever do to merit even one thousandth of one percent of this thing. That's actually one of the strongest reasons I think that Christianity must be true. Because what sane adult would invent a religion where you give away the most valuable thing in the universe absolutely for free? We don't do that. That's weird. The weirdness of that, the ridiculousness of the freeness of eternal life is proof to me God had to invent it because no human being would ever think of this. So actually, it's too good to be true. Yeah, and that's why it is true. Third objection I'll often get from people, well, there's just too many hypocrites. I've known Christians who are bigoted and mean and greedy and lie and immoral. And to that I say, yeah, yeah, we all have. I'm really sad about that. I'm really sorry about that. But I'd remind you that that's true of every group on earth. Every religious group, every political group, every ethnic group has its outliers who don't act as the rest, who don't act as they should. Please do not judge the group by the outliers. The hypocritical Christians, there's no excuse for that. That makes God really, really angry. Look at Jesus and the Pharisees and you'll know. There's no excuse for it, but please don't make up your mind based on the bad behavior of the few. If you've been burned by Christian hypocrites in the past, I would invite you to get to know this family of Christians right here. I've been at Grace Bible Church now for, oh, I should have done the math before I got up here, 22 years, I think? Long time. Seen this church for a long time. I've gotten to know a lot of people here. And I've seen an incredible amount of love an incredible amount of sacrifice, an incredible amount of grace and service and forgiveness over the years in this church body. And I would invite you to give us another chance, please. Get to know this family. Yeah, there will always be hypocrites in any group out there. But I believe there's some incredible people here who will show you the love of Jesus Christ. Fourth objection that I often get from people was just too exclusive. Yeah, Blake, I love the idea of God dying for us and rising from the dead to give us eternal life. That sounds wonderful, but there's all these other great religions on the planet. Who are you to say that Christianity is true and they are false? Who are you to decide that? Your truth just sounds too exclusive. I can't embrace it because it's too exclusive. Well, to that I would say, well, truth by its very nature is exclusive, Truth is exclusive. You, you, you can't change that fact about truth. Many of you are fans of the Serial podcast, uh, a series of, of radio uh, on NPR about a guy named Adnan Syed. If you followed it, you know that Adnan either murdered his ex-girlfriend or he did not murder his ex-girlfriend. It cannot be both, right? It's not a matter of opinion. There is no middle ground. 
He either murdered her or he didn't murder her because that's how truth works. It is by its definition exclusive. Something is true, therefore the opposite of it must be false. There's no way around that. So either God exists or he does not exist. It cannot be both. There is no middle ground. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he did not rise from the dead. It cannot be both. And if he rose from the dead, then Christianity is true and authoritative and you must believe it. And if he did not rise from the dead, then you are wasting your time listening to me this morning. And you should have slept in. Truth by its very nature is exclusive. And so every person on the planet must at some point decide. Are the claims of the gospel true or false? It can't sit in the middle. It can't be both. It's one or the other. You're free to choose, but you must choose. And so if you're here this morning and you haven't yet trusted in Jesus, there's been something holding you back, but now you're feeling like, okay, well, maybe. Maybe it's time to actually become persuaded that this really did happen, that a guy named Jesus really did die for my sins, rise from the dead to give me eternal life. What do I do now? Well, it's really, there's nothing you have to go do. All I'd encourage you to do is right now, just in your mind, thank God. That's what the gospel leads us to do. Just, just thank God. Just say in your mind right now to God, you can just bow your head if you want, or you don't have to if that feels awkward to you. Just say to God, thank you. Thank you that you sent your son to die for my sins and rise from the dead so that I could have eternal life as a free gift. I believe he really did it. And I thank you, God, for giving that gift to me. The moment you say that to God, the event of salvation has happened. You are forgiven. You are justified. You are reconciled. You are redeemed. You are adopted. And nothing can ever change that fact. If there's anything holding you back, please come talk to me. Write me, email me, whatever. Love to talk to you about that. Now, for those of us who have trusted in Jesus, we have been persuaded that all of this gospel stuff is true. What's the application for us? Well, who are you going to tell about it? To whom much is given, much is required. Well, do you feel like you've been given much? I want to walk you through something for a second. Maybe this will flip a switch in your mind. I want you to understand that if you have received eternal life, if eternal life costs the life of God, who is the most valuable person ever, then it is by its very nature the most valuable thing that's ever existed, and you have it and other people do not. And so therefore, you are richer than any billionaire on earth. You are more privileged than any movie star. You are the 1% of the 1%. You are the lucky ones. Do you understand that? It's not Bill Gates not Warren Buffett, it's not Jennifer Aniston. You are the lucky ones. You have been given much more than anyone else on earth. Therefore, to whom much is given, much is required. This isn't about salvation. This is about what we should do. God wants us to take that incredible gift of salvation and share it with other people. That's why we're actually still here. It's the reason God hasn't taken you to heaven where things will be much better for you. He still has you here because you've got a job to do. Not to earn salvation, but in response to this incredible gift. God wants you to take this incredible privilege you've received and share it with others. And so I'm going to close this in prayer in a second. When I do, I want you to think of a name and a face. So a name and a face of a person in your life, maybe a family member, a friend, a neighbor, coworker, classmate, somebody who doesn't yet know Jesus as their Savior. I want you to picture their face. I want you to say their name in your mind. And then I want you, as I pray, I want you to pray that God would save that person. 
that God would open their eyes to see the gospel, to see how beautiful it is, and to believe it, and that God would use you as an instrument in their salvation, as a witness to them of the love and truth of Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, and we thank you for this incredible gift of salvation. We praise you for eternal life, that your son earned it for us by dying in our place. We thank you that you offer it to us as an absolutely free gift. There's no strings. There's nothing we must do on the front end or the back end. We praise you and thank you for your grace, God. We pray that right now as we're closing our eyes, we pray that you would bring to each of our minds a name and a face of a person who has not yet received this gift. Heavenly Father, we plead with you for this person's life. We beg of you that you would open their eyes to see and believe the gospel. We pray that you would soften their hearts. We pray that you would convict them of sin and that you would humble them and that you would help them to be able to receive the free gift of eternal life. And we pray, God, that you would use us Send us forth this week to be witnesses to this person that we're thinking about. Help us to show them the love of Jesus Christ through our actions. Help us to share with them the love of Jesus Christ through our words. We pray, God, that you would use each of us as your instruments in the lives of these people to lead them to Jesus Christ so that they might have eternal life. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use Grace Bible Church to reach the thousands of men and women in this town, in this community, who do not yet know your Son. We pray that you would use us each and every day to share the incredibly good news. Please help us to believe that we are the lucky ones, that we are the top 1% of the top 1% because we know Jesus. And from that belief, please help us to walk out of here with a conviction and a burden to share our wealth, our riches of eternal life with those who don't yet have it. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would reach this town and this community with the light and the love of Jesus Christ. Please use us. In the name and for the glory of your Son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a wonderful week.